Rebag is a luxury resale marketplace. They have a curated collection of investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry. Each piece is carefully vetted and verified by experts. You can buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Hermes, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. That's Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. Betches Media presents Donald Trump was a, a stain on our country. I'm someone's daughter, too. That's what I'm so saying. help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. The Betches Sup Podcast. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Hello and welcome to the Betches Sup Podcast. It's Amanda Duberman here, and today we're bringing you an extra episode featuring interviews with two Asian American leaders, Representative Mark Takano of California and NBC reporter Kimmy Yam. Please take the time to listen and share. I am here with Kimmy Yam, a reporter at NBC who covers news and Asian American affairs, and she's my former colleague at HuffPost. Hi, Kimmy. How are you, Amanda? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We're so appreciative that you're here today. And you are the expert on this topic. Uh, The day before the attack this week, you were sounding the alarm and um, obviously woke up the next day and have had to sound it even louder. So to start really broadly, you wrote a follow-up piece about this after the attack about how the dehumanization and over-sexualization of Asian women in this country for centuries kind of can be connected to what we're seeing and what we saw this week. So I want to ask you broadly, what about the history of Asian women's marginalization in the U.S. means that the racial element of Tuesday's attack can't be separated from the gendered element? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, experts and activists, they all stress that because of how Asian women and, you know, the forces that kind of created a lot of the stereotypes around Asian women. So we are, you know, seen as docile or submissive or sexually deviant. Um, we it's perceived that we are, you know, less of a threat. We won't fight back. A lot of these ideas make us, you know, particularly vulnerable to a lot of physical and sexual violence. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, statistics show that it's around 21% to 55% of Asian American women um, experience some type of uh, violence from an intimate partner sometime in their lifetime. Wow, yeah. How have pop culture and entertainment perpetuated these dehumanizing stereotypes? Um, you know, even when the news came out, I think you you probably saw on Twitter, there's a lot of these, um, you know, happy ending yeah. jokes. Um, we have all heard, you know, that song from Two Live Crew that I'm not going to repeat yeah. right now. Um, and, you know, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, for example, that one uh, pretty infamous scene um, with the Vietnamese sex worker. Uh, A lot of these different interpretations of what Asian women look like in the media um, kind of confirm the, you know, this idea that we are just sex objects. Um, And it's very dehumanizing, kind of stripping a very two-dimensional way to look at us. Um, But it's interesting that a lot of these images, you know, that stereotype kind of started all the way back since Asian American women entered this country. It was just, you know, it's something that we can talk about 
that occurred centuries ago. Um, and so, you know, it's something that's formed through legal code, America's history of war and imperial domination. Um, and then it's kind of persisted to this day because of this mentality, um, you know, that experts kind of stress that we have a culture that confirms all of these ideas and continues to confirm these ideas. And so it creates this environment where people think that they can, um, you know, target or it is much easier to target Asian women. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the past year people are realizing you hear about these things in history, but the history is it's still in your brain. It's still everywhere and seeps into you and our behaviors. So the day before the attack, like I said, you published a report, a new report from Stop AAPI Hate. And it stated um, that in the year of the pandemic so far, I believe between like February and this March, there were 3,800 uh anti-Asian hate crime attacks reported. A majority of those, 68%, were reported by women. Did that surprise you? And if if it did, why? And if it didn't, why not? Um, it did not surprise me. Uh, I think we decided to pull out that portion of the report because it just, that that yeah. gendered issue, I mean, it is a very, you know, it's a, it's, it's a issue of misogyny um, and that it hasn't been addressed when we're talking about attacks on Asian, on the Asian community throughout the pandemic. Um, but truthfully, in the last report that was published by Stop AAPI Hate, um, I think they examined about five months um, during the pandemic and they found about 2,800 incidents. And so in that time, it was a similar proportion of women um, reporting versus men. I think it was the it was probably exactly the same 2.3 yeah. times uh, women report at 2.3 times more than men. Um, and so, no, it really wasn't surprising. Um, and the reasons why, you know, I think uh, that's something that Asian women, um, I, I think a lot of the details and um, around this case is shedding a light on these issues that feel very new to most people. But I think for a lot of Asian women, I mean, you know, for even just me walking outside, uh, the likelihood that we won't get harassed or, you know, something said to us on the street um, in a single outing, I it's so low. Honestly, I don't, oh it, it wasn't something that surprised me. And I know that when that report came out, a lot of Asian women um, reached out to me saying, you know, oh, oh, this is something that I'm scared of every single day. Um, Dr. Russell Jung, who I had talked to about this, you know, he stressed that Asian women deal with this, you know, not within the confines of a pandemic. Um, but the pandemic has made it so that, you know, he believed that there's another excuse to harass Asian women. And it's it brought in another layer of racism that's tied to the virus. So truthfully, what he, he was basically saying that this is nothing new and Asian American women have dealt with public safety issues for so long. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of friends of Asian descent who have said some, one of the most painful things about this week is, is realizing and facing the fact that like encounters they've had in the past that maybe seem just gendered, realizing that was racial too, and that they're targeted as Asian women. And that's a fact. And I know a lot of people that feel a lot less safe going outside now. I also wanted to ask you, is it accurate to refer to this recent spate of anti-Asian violence as a surge? Those numbers you talked about sound really big, but I'm, I'm curious if we're just finally paying enough attention to the crimes and if maybe feel more comfortable to report crimes. Do you think it's accurate to say, oh, this came out of nowhere and suddenly it's out of control? Yeah, um, it's definitely not 
accurate to say that we yeah, the report I mentioned that Stop API Hate came out with last year um, when the 2800 um, was reported. I, I think that since then we've seen a lot of graphic attacks on Asian Americans um, circulate, and it's uh, you know Russell Jung he also mentioned that it's. Made it so that because of the virality and because many more people are aware of the situation, what's really going on, um, people feel a little bit more com- well. I guess not comfortable, but they feel the need, the necessity to report now because it it's an actual problem that's been confirmed. Um, but. Truthfully, a lot of these incidents, um, and the report had mentioned this, that a lot of the 2020 incidents were retroactively reported in 2021, um, and that, you know, there are so many barriers uh, for Asian Americans to report things like this. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of mistrust in law enforcement. There is a lot of... um, you know, there's a lack of access to a lot of resources, and then many people in the community may not know that these resources exist, and also there's language barriers. Um, and then, you know, in low-income communities in particular, and I know this is definitely true in New York City, where there's a huge fear of retaliation uh, because a lot of times, you know, people feel that if they report something to the police, or report something, you know, anywhere, that their attackers, you know, th- it's a very tight-knit community. The attackers will come back and and you know seek revenge, and so that's there's been multiple concerns on that level. Um, But again, a lot of the violence and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of attacks on Asian Americans are also just not confined to the pandemic, but definitely um, heightened because of a further, uh, you know, acceleration of this anti-Asian sentiment throughout the pandemic. But it's definitely, you know, that pain and that fear has always existed. Um, there's always kind of, I, I think that we're seeing a lot of attacks on elders. And I, I know people have told me that in poor income areas, um, attacks on, you know, Asian American elders and, you know, just Asian Americans in general is just not quite, um, it, it's not so uncommon because, you know, there's some sort of experts kind of note that in a lot of these cases, there's some, uh, there could be some sort of racial profiling going on. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of factors that are playing into this. I think a lot of it is worse because we are in times of pandemic. Yeah. And do you think it's also because obviously the past four years have created a sort of permission structure for white supremacy in general? I've seen a lot of, um, as people have been speaking about this week, it's important to say stop Asian hate, but it's also important to recognize that this is a product of white supremacy, which is and a separate battle, but a, a huge part of this. I mean, I don't yeah. know how they're supposed to, you mentioned trust in law enforcement. Yeah, I probably wouldn't pr- report a hate crime to a cop who put on Facebook, the virus is from China. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's actually a lot of evidence around. So the attacks that when people go and attack Asian Americans specifically because of anger from you know the virus, um, a lot of that behavior you know, experts say they chalk it up to, you know, in part what the previous administration was saying um, and kind of allowed for the China virus rhetoric and, and that type of language was, you know, oh, was used pretty frequently. And, you know, when concerns around it were brought up, um, Kevin McCarthy, who is now the House Minority Leader, but then House Majority Leader, um, he had 
you know, said on the House floor something to the effect of, uh, you know, there's not a single kitchen in America that's talking about this issue. Um, and so, you know, Representative Grace Mang had mentioned that it was just such, such a dismissive way um, to talk about it. But, you know, studies actually show that um, when this rhetoric was introduced, particularly on social media and after um, Paul Gosar and Mike Pompeo had kind of used it, um, it that it, I believe it was the week of March 9th. It was either on the day of March 8th or March 9th um, after that had been used. So there was a, you know, this idea that um, Asian Americans are American that had, you know, America had been trending towards that belief for about a decade or more. Um, and then, you know, once that rhetoric was introduced, yeah. it reversed in the matter of a couple days. Um, wow. And so that's really all it took. Um, so, you know, th there's proof that it's in some ways that it actually has, you know, had a profound effect on how Americans see their Asian community. Um, and so, you know, when, when people say it's just rhetoric or it's it's just uh, semantics, um, you know, research kind of proves otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So you and your editor now at NBC America, Jesse Preuss, have been working tirelessly to improve the representation of Asian faces and stories. And I think most importantly, the diversity of those stories. I mean, I remember one of the first big pieces you guys did as Asian Voices was about how Chinese, Chinese immigrants or Chinese people that live in New York are some of the poorest New Yorkers. But because of the model minority myth, we just have this idea that Asian people are not struggling. You mentioned that 21 to 55 percent of Asian women report domestic violence. But then constantly we are told that Asian women actually make more than white women. So that all gets erased. And like you just provided such a service and like really opened my mind and so many other people's minds at that time, too. There is not one experience. There's so many experiences and there's so much work to be done and there's so many stories that need to be uncovered so how does it feel to sort of finally see the discourse catch up to what you've been seeing and saying and sounding the alarm about for six seven years i mean i'm sure as long as you've been doing this work do you feel heartened or do you feel anger oh i i think for a lot of reporters who have done work on this beat it is kind of i don't know it's definitely a mix of emotions yeah. um because it, it you know, right now we're dealing with an issue where um, we don't, we, in the past, you know, Asian Americans were perceived as like very invisible and there was just nothing um, in media. I, I think that, yeah. you know, even though we had found stories every single day to report on, um, that wasn't necessarily the mentality of a lot of newsrooms or even people in our former newsroom, frankly. No, I um, remember the time that you guys got the most attention and resources that you need was when Crazy Rich Asians came out, which mm -hmm. is cool and important, but not the most important story you could have been telling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that was frustrating because it's just, you know, it's, it's, it, in order to really showcase the diversity and true diversity of a community, it's not really just crowding around one issue yeah. um, when it's popular. And that is kind of, you know, right now, a lot of people are being introduced to Asian Americans through tragedy. And I think that yeah. that's, that's really sad because the community is, you know, the community has a lot of these issues and has had a lot of these issues for a long time. Um, but there's there's also a lot of joy attached to the community. And I, I think that, um, 
you know, people may be overlooking that or may not be very open to that right now um, because of the circumstances. And so hopefully, you know, after this, I'm I'm hoping that people will, you know, take uh, will seek more information about Asian Americans Mm -hmm. and kind of open their minds. Um, It's interesting to hear because it's just even people who are close to me, um, uh, who aren't Asian, you know, they've been saying that they're they're shocked by a lot yeah. of the things that have been going on, and or or you know now now they really understand, um, and it, it's just it's a it's a weird feeling uh, to know that it kind of it took such an insane, horrible, senseless tragedy for people to get that. Um, so I don't, you know, yeah, especially it, it, you said uh, at the beginning that there's not any time you go outside and don't think about it. And now suddenly yeah. six people are violently killed. And that's that's what it takes. And mm-hmm. I mean, people were saying, I think members of Congress were saying, this is this is what this will lead to if this rhetoric continues. And it was inevitable. You mentioned friends of yours speaking to you about this issue. And I know a lot of our Asian friends and family really appreciate Uh, hearing from us that we're also devastated by the attack, that they're not alone, that we're thinking of them. But I'm curious, since you mentioned this, for listeners who maybe haven't broached this topic with their Asian friends before, do you have an example of a message you received that really touched you and made you feel supported? Um, I don't, I I really think it's just like a simple, like, how how are you feeling? Are you okay? You know, Um, I, I do think that people... I, I think too. One thing that I'm seeing is a lot of people are uh, kind of scared to admit what they know and what they don't know, and then they do this sort of like weird mental gymnastics. Right. So like, oh, you totally. know, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, yeah. It's kind of just like, oh, I'm so scared to say the wrong thing, but also I'm not really doing the work to understand what the right thing is. So exactly, I'm just gonna you know, I, I'm just gonna <laughs> pole vault over all this like you know, stuff that we actually have to address. And so I I think being like, if you're having a conversation with someone and you really don't understand something, or or if you really don't know what, you know, Asian American women have been going through or what they do go through, you know, I I think it's important to not pretend you do know. (laughs) Yes. You know, and I I think this goes um, for any conversation around race. I think it's been helpful for me, um, to know from people who are not Asian um, to be explicit about what they don't understand and what they want to understand. And I, I don't think that people of color should ever bear the brunt of like explaining everything to their white friends. But I also think it's just so it, it's kind of, you know, it, it's kind of disrespectful when people aren't upfront about it because it's kind of, um, you know, it's out of safety for themselves versus actually wanting to learn about the material or wanting to learn about the issue. And so I I guess that's probably um, most important in these conversations right now. Yeah, yeah, I do. I know I've talked to people that it can feel weird just being like, hey, how are you? Because it does admit and acknowledge that your friend is a marginalized person who's in danger. And I know people are like, do they want to hear that? But it's like, they already know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not breaking the news to them. Like nobody's right. be like, oh no, Amanda's worried. Am I not safe? So I think that's so important to hear that a simple like, hey, how are you? And, um, you know, o- only white people are in white only spaces and hear mm-hmm. the type of racism that can come out so casually. And so I think it's right. People know more than they want to 
admit and really need to to challenge those perspectives. But um, thank you so much for your time. Again, I am like so indebted to you and Jesse and everybody on that Voices team. I mean, you guys had oh. every reason to give up <laughs> on reporting the stories and you never stopped. And I'm so glad you're you're all over TV and sharing your expertise. And thank you so much for making the time today. Oh, man, that means so much. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you are searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone on any occasion. Now it's easier to find gifts made by independent sellers for all of the people in your life, like the pickleballers, I know plenty of those, the jazz fan, the artist, the pasta lover, whatever niche interest they have, you can find an incredible gift on Etsy. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there is something for everyone. There is so much pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas specifically for my dad, but my dad loves flying, he loves airplanes, he loves aviation, and he never gets sick of a cute little gift that has a reference to that. And the inventory for that on Etsy is incredible. I hope my dad lives for 200 years because I can get him a birthday present related to aviation or planes from Etsy for every single one of them, if not hundreds and hundreds of years more. There really is that much. A gifting moment is always around the corner, but whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hey there, overwhelmed foodies. Are you drowning in a sea of meal kit options, feeling like you're in a bad dating game where every contestant looks the same, with the same fish picture? Fear not, because amidst the chaos, there's one shining star worth your culinary affection. Home Chef is not just another fish in the meal kit sea. They're the gourmet catch that you've been dreaming of. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes, conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you and the entire family covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week, and they serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it is economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. So for a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free shipping on your first box and free dessert for life at homechef.com slash feverdream. That's homechef.com slash feverdream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life homechef.com slash feverdream. You must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. I am here with Congressman Mark Takano, who has represented California's 41st congressional district since 2013. Thank you so much for joining us today, Congressman. Oh, you're welcome, Amanda. I wanted to open with just asking how you are doing. You are Japanese American, and this has been a very devastating and painful week during a painful few months of a painful year. How are you feeling? Well, I'm, I'm personally doing okay. It's, you know, I'm, I've got a flurry of things to do, but it was very right. jarring yesterday morning to wake up to this news. I was very, it was sickened. And of course, you know, the details of the, uh, the murders in Georgia, you know, weren't clear, but they certainly, I certainly was jarring to hear of the multiple murders of Asian women uh, in Georgia. And, they, and it's occurring in the context of rising 
violence against Asian Americans and Asian immigrants in this country. Yeah. And I think the media as a whole has embraced the idea that race played a factor in this crime. But I've seen some sidestepping of calling this fatal attack outright a hate crime. What about the history and nature of anti-Asian discrimination in this country makes that racial element feel just abundantly clear to Asian Americans themselves? Well, you know, this country uh, has a history going back to its beginnings of proscribing or not allowing uh, any Asian immigrants to naturalize. They couldn't become citizens of this country uh, for the longest time. And uh, there were uh, Chinese exclusion acts. There were Japanese exclusion acts. Um, my own grandfather couldn't, uh, when he became, when he was an immigrant here, uh, couldn't buy property because there were, you know, um, alien land laws. Uh, I mean, there was a real anti-Asian sentiment and it was structurally built into the law. Uh, and um, uh, so when my, my, when my grandparents got married, uh, my, my paternal grandparents, I had, I had an immigrant grandfather and an American-born grandmother. They bought property in her name uh, because, uh, and then, you know, for most of his life in the 20th century, he couldn't naturalize as a citizen. He never did. Because it was, it was, he could. There was no pathway for citizenship for most of his life, and that kind of blows the minds of dreamers that I talk to today. But it's yeah. also a point of inspiration because I tell them, this guy who never could become a citizen had a grandson that became a congressman. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've done a lot of cool things, by the way. I was researching you this morning. I think he would be thrilled. Um, this morning, your colleagues on the House Judiciary Committee and a number of members of Congress, they held a hearing on this specific topic. I'm actually curious, I, was that hearing scheduled ahead of Wednesday or was it scheduled after the attack? You know, I don't know when it was scheduled. Uh, I personally couldn't attend it myself. And I thank my fierce uh, women colleagues for testifying, my women Democratic colleagues. Yeah. I don't know what the what the Republican uh, Asian women uh, members did, but um, I heard they did a lot of kind of bizarre. Yeah, there were so, some some tangents <laughs> about admissions at college admissions. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well I, I had a chance to look at some of the clips of of my Asian uh, Democratic members, and they were quite fierce. Uh, yeah. and especially Grace Meng uh, pushing back on. Uh, on Chip Roy, uh, you know, Chip, Chip just went off on a tangent and some some really crazy logic of false equivalencies, false equivalencies, trying to equate calling for responsible leadership from the very top, from the president, from the former president, um, who used to use words like Kung flu and China virus um, from an Asian American perspective, we know that whenever there's tensions with uh, an, Asian, an East Asian country, uh, there's rising tensions, whether it's Japan or China, um, that tension gets felt by all Asian Americans in this country. And I'm going to give you an example. Back in the 80s, there was a Chinese American man named Vincent Chen on the verge of being married. He was, this is just a few days before he was about to be married. Uh, he's, he lives in Detroit. He was murdered by out-of-work auto workers who were upset about the fact that they had lost their jobs uh, in the auto factory because of rising Japanese Japanese imports. And they, they just thought he was Japanese. 
Uh, and so they killed him. Uh, they beat him up out of anger and a drunken fit of rage. And, um, but that's an example of how it doesn't matter whether you're Japanese, mm-hmm. Chinese, Korean, whatever. It's like you have Asian features, you're gonna, it's going to be generalized uh, against you. And, um, and that's kind of how this whole thing with Tr- Donald Trump using Kung flu, mm-hmm. which is a really adolescent thing to do. I mean, I, I could, like, I, these things were called, I was called certain things when I was in middle school or elementary school. Uh, and when Donald Trump said that, it just reminded me yeah. of that kind of immaturity. And then unless there's a real leadership from like a teacher or somebody to intervene, it just kind of, it just starts to happen everywhere. And then sooner or later, someone's going to get hurt, you know? Uh, and yeah. that's what we've been trying. That's what the Asian Americans in Congress have been saying all along. Somebody's going to get hurt, and this is going to end up not. This is going to. And so, like um, this incident in Georgia, uh, there are other sorts of explanations being bandied about. Mm-hmm. It's complicated, but look, Asian women are dead, uh, and it's happening in, a, in, a, in an environment of rising sense of license among certain parts of our, of our nation to take out frustration and rage against Asian people and people of Asian descent and Asian Americans. Right, right. And, and obviously, despite what the assailant said, the precursor to ending somebody's life is dehumanization. And there is a very deep history of marginalization and dehumanization of Asian immigrants in this country for centuries. Thank you for saying that. I mean, you're speaking, what you just said is that the marginalization or the dehumanization, the the idea that uh, eliminating, as the word was used, uh, to eliminate somebody who was a threat to your eternal salvation, um, it means that you did not see that that person over there had a soul in the terms of your own religion. Uh, that was just as sacred as your own soul. Uh, and so you felt them expendable. Uh, and so uh, whether it was because they were women or it was because they, they were Asian women, um, hard to separate that out. But, I, but, you know, I suspect, you know, having known what it means to be dehumanized and not be regarded as fully human, mm-hmm. um, this, is, this is how people become expendable and eliminatable. You're right. You can You're able to eliminate people who, who you don't regard as equal to yourself. Totally. That verb choice is really, really telling. That he didn't even use, say, murder or kill. He just thought that they were objects that could be eliminated. You have a direct experience with this dehumanization, marginalization, or your parents and grandparents were among those who were interned in the 1940s, as you said. I'm curious how you learned about that experience, how it was discussed in your household, and then if you encountered that when you went to school, or if it was only in the home. Can you tell us about that? Well. Um, it started when I was a little boy. I remember being like five or six years old and going into this place where there was a few books on a bookshelf. And there were two books that I remember. I remember the titles. One was called Nisei, uh, which means second generation or the right. generation that's born after the immigrant. In, in Japanese, you count Ichi, Ni, San, Shi, and Issei means first generation, the immigrant generation. Nisei means second generation. It was written by a guy named Bill Hosokawa. And the other book was called America's Concentration Camps. 
And I hadn't really understood that they were Jewish in, in concentration camps then, but it was like, yeah. it was obviously playing off the, the well-known uh, concentration camps that were in Europe that mostly it was, it was uh, six million Jews, and that there were many more uh, dehumanized people of the Nazi regime. But, but I remember looking through uh, the book at the pictures uh, and seeing the tar papered barracks and asking my mother and father, my mother mainly was telling me about her father, that my father and her were in, in these camps. And that was the beginning of that education. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a lot longer to piece together the, what the pain and suffering of my own family was. Um, my, my father's father was the only immigrant uh, in our family. Uh, the rest were American born, but the other grandparents, were. but they were all in my grandparents, my parents, they were all in internment camps. Uh, and you know, that, that occurred during a time when they were the Japanese Americans and Japanese people of Japanese descent were scapegoated and assigned mass blame. Uh, if there's any similarity between what happened uh, between them and say the European Jews under Hitler is this idea of mass guilt and mass blame. Uh, no due process, uh, no crimes that they had committed. Uh, they were rounded up en masse because of their racial characteristics, uh, because of that. And it's a chilling moment to think that this happened in America, uh, that the Constitution, that, that there was a failure of political leadership, that that happened. So um, as, I, as I grew older, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, it, it, when I was around uh, 10 years old, 10 years old, my immigrant grandfather, Sao Takano, took me on my first plane ride to go to Seattle or the Seattle area. He had entered into the country through Tacoma, Washington. And that's where he and uh, my grandmother, they had bought property and her name, because he couldn't do it because of the alien land laws. They bought property around 1937, 38. And uh, they'd had greenhouses on this property. It was in Bellevue, Washington. And it was about five acres with five green, big greenhouses. They grew produce uh, for, the, for the, uh, the Pikes Market, you know, the famous oh. Pikes Market in Seattle. Um, but when they were interned uh, in internment camps, when they were incarcerated, they couldn't work those greenhouses and they couldn't pay the taxes on the property. They would lose that property. Yeah. And work he wanted to show me was where that property was. What was on the property then was a was a was a was the Holiday Inn. And he couldn't speak much English to me, and I was kind of a fidgety ten year old, not fully like you know yeah. what ten year old is. But it took me a few, maybe a couple of decades later, to understand what it meant. He was like, he left the concentrate, he left those internment camps in his fifties, unable to start really over again. He ended up being a gardener, but. He was telling me, look, look, grandson, uh, this is what I could have had. Wow. I bought five acres of property that, that ended up being a hotel. That, and today it's a red lion in. It's worth probably $25 million. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. $2,500. So this was a, a huge setback for the family in terms of the generational wealth that could totally. have been produced, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the trouble with the model minority myth is people take for granted the the centuries and decades of history that that wealth was interrupted. That's right. So um, 
and it was impeded in other ways. I mean, the fact that, um, you know, in the early, the early 20th century, uh, you know, uh, if my grandmother, who was American born, married my grandfather, uh, she could lose her citizenship because she married, she married somebody who was unable to naturalize. And up until the 19, early 1930s for Asians, uh, that was definitely not, not correct. And oddly enough, this also was true of white women too. Mm-hmm. White women up until 1921 could marry somebody um, uh, and, and lose their citizenship because uh, they, they, their, their citizenship, their birthright citizenship was not stable. But anyway... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you're speaking, it just it makes me realize that we really underestimate how much of this. I think there's a perception that these tragedies and atrocities only happen to immigrants or people new in the country. But they were these were Americans and people that had families and roots in the country that were considered enemies. That's right. They'd been here. They by the 40s, when 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 the the, uh, evacuations and the internment happened. Uh, they had been in the country for decades and, um, uh, and, and they were, you know, very productive. Uh, they had a lot, a lot of them had agricultural, um, businesses like my, 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 my grandparents did. Um, the children spoke mostly English and, and played baseball. Um, you know, this is, this is who, uh, this is how that, how that kind of came about. Yeah, yeah. You are also a member of the LGBTQ community. You were the first openly gay person of color elected to Congress. Can you talk, I think you've talked a bit about these double vulnerabilities. Can you discuss the intersections between anti-Asian sentiment and homophobia and how you've sort of experienced or witnessed those in your own life? I kind of lightly call it being Gaysian, like a gay and Asian, so Gaysian. So what that's like is knowing that, um, you, you know, you, you grow up, I mean, I grew up, I, I grew up with not so much, I wasn't perceived as necessarily gay when I was in, in school, but definitely I was smart. Uh, and often being smart uh, breeds resentment. And that resentment can show up by you being called an F, with, like, like there's an F word for mm-hmm. gay. So I was often called the effort for gay in class or to kind of you, you effing, you know, uh, you know, I, I was on a basketball team and not, I'm not that great an athlete. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I, I missed a pass or I flubbed a shot or something. And one of my teammates was really angry and, and called me an effing job. Wow. Uh, and that was, that, that was harsh, you know, now this person is a good friend of mine today. Uh, and, um, but that definitely came from a hate, that came from a hateful place, right? You kind of called somebody, uh, you're, you took out on anger. So, I mean, right. I took it out on anger. I took, was angry and then used the word jab. Mm-hmm. Um, so together those definitely the idea that you're growing up with being gay, um, there, there is this definite feeling in our society that we don't accept people who are different. Um, and it, it manifests itself in many different ways. Um, I certainly think we want to build a healthier society uh, where we embrace difference 
And uh, I mean, the whole idea of being queer, how the, how the LGBT community has kind of taken in the Q word. Mm -hmm. Like we proudly wear Q. Like right. we're, we're, proudly, we're proudly accused. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, I'm different. And so what? I'm right. Um, and That's the best part about the LGBTQ movement is it's just so that everybody can be a little weirder. Well, you know, the, and the problem with not showing leadership, um, not having teachers intervene, not having parents and not having presidents set the tone about respect is you have people growing up ashamed of who they are, yeah. whether it's because they're of a different race or it's because they're LGBTQ and then they don't like themselves. Yeah. Uh, and they internalize this, this and they spend many use, useless years trying to accept themselves as well. And that kind of twists people in different ways. And I think that's part of what, what can really be harmful, uh, not to just those people, but it really inhibits us as a whole society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you're telling that that story about playing basketball, I just I can't imagine how it must feel years later to watch your Republican colleagues vote both against the Equality Act and they all voted against a very simple bill to condemn anti-Asian hate. You know, my colleague Grace Mayne uh, put that bill, put that resolution, you know, a resolution. You know, uh, and then I think it was last September. It seemed longer ago, but I, I, I was looking that up because I was I was vaguely remembering. That. I was like, I, I remember Mr. Hoyer, our, our the, the majority leader, uh, in the chairman's meeting because uh, I'm one of the committee chairs. He says, I can't believe this is not going under unanimous consent. He was just sort of like, I can't believe. And why, why was it that it was that a resolution condemning anti it, it, it required like, no money, nothing the, like that. It was just. And, and, there, and in fact, there were a number of Republicans who actually, not a, a number is too much. I mean, it's like maybe 20 or so, 20 out of the 200 uh, who supported, who supported uh, this resolution. Um, but, uh, what happened was they all, I think they felt an obligation to defend the president. It was like months before the election. They didn't, they, they all kind of stayed solid with this president's use of, you know, there was arguments like he's, he's not, he's, he's not uh, harming Asian Americans. He's trying to call out China and he's trying to, you know, uh, and there's nothing wrong with them saying Kung flu. And there's nothing wrong with them saying China virus or Wuhan virus. It's just that's what's wrong with that. That's where the virus comes from. And um, when what I think, you know, an objective observer would see that what the president was doing was provoking and stirring up hate uh, and resentment, uh, trying to blame shift, you know, shift blame on to China for the failings of his own leadership in yeah. terms of controlling the virus, you know, uh, right. and, and, and inhibiting infections. Right. So you represent the 41st district of California. I was reading today that California and New York actually see some of the, the highest rates of reported hate crime incidents against Asian Americans. I'm sure part of this is there's just a really large concentration of Asian Americans in these areas. But I know that might be surprising to people that think that California and New York are like dominated by ultra accepting coastal elites and it doesn't happen here. What do you think that assumption and the fact that we're seeing hate crimes in these so-called liberal enclaves, what does that tell you about what we're getting, what people get wrong about why these attacks play out and what motivates them? Well, um, understand that um, 
I'll try to get to this as quickly as I can, but I've often observed that the more noticeable a minority is, if you're like a super, super minority, um, it's just a few, you're not a threat. You don't you're not perceive it as a threat. Yeah. Um, if you are a noticeable minority um, or slightly bigger, then that becomes in, in the eyes of maybe others, um, a potential threat. Um, and there are like stereotypes or perceptions about that minority, Asian minorities, that, uh, for instance, there's all sorts of, of mythology around the Asian driver, <laughs> right? Okay. People driving cars. So it's like the anger that gets like uh, um, directed toward Asians uh, on that yeah. score. But it, it's just, it's, it's, it's a phenomenon of where there's a noticeable minority. There, there tends to be a tendency towards some tribalism, and it takes it takes a, an incendiary leader or an incendiary politics to deepen that sense. And so, um, so you know, in, in big cities where you have we have ethnic blocks, mm-hmm. um, you, you can see that sort of tribal politics sort of play out. Right, so right. That, that's how I would explain that. Yeah. And so to wrap up, um, what was Congress doing to address anti-Asian hate crimes before this week? I know your colleagues in Congress have been working on this. And how do you think this horrific tragedy will impact that work? What is a best case scenario in terms of how national politicians can address what's going on moving forward? Well, I mean, we were we were uh, getting letters off to President Biden um, asking him to focus on this issue in certain ways. Uh, we were advocating for uh, Asians in the cabinet. I mean, we were really trying to impress upon him. I was disappointed that he didn't yeah. really listen to us, um, that it was important to have an Asian face in the cabinet um, and that it made a difference to, say, have Norm Manetta in George Bush's cabinet because you know he, he made a difference in terms of preventing a kind of mass blame at least in terms of policy against, um, you know, uh, Muslim Americans, because he, he could, he had the moral authority of like what he went through um, as a child, having been interned in an internment camp. And so, um, and actually president George W. Bush has actually said that that made a difference. So um, uh, we've done things like um, uh, also Grace, Grace Meng's resolution, uh, an anti-Asian sentiment. She's got a, a no hate bill, but you know what? Ultimately, my I place my hope in a change in tone brought forward by President Biden. We can't underestimate that, and I think there has to be some some, some sense of shaming toward the, the persistent Trumpiness of Leader McCarthy. Yeah. and other Republicans in the Congress. Um, and why do I say that? I mean, even as we were passing the, uh, the American Rescue Plan, Leader McCarthy was reading like Dr. Seuss books to ridicule the fact that a responsible organization like the Dr. Seuss Foundation, you know, which comes from the family, was pulling books that Dr. Seuss had authored, which... They thought we're going to harm, it's going to be harmful, harmful to Asian children, harmful to all children 
uh, in perpetuating these terrible stereotypes about, uh, about, and he was labeling that as cancel culture or whatever he was trying to say. But I'm trying to tell you, it's like, I think the new uh, ethos being brought forward by a responsible president that is trying to foster uh, a better uh, example of leaders um, that parents can look to uh, and say, this is what, this is, this is the proper way to behave. And I think we've got to really speak out and marginalize the kinds of antics of um, elected officials that continue to um, continue to be Trumpy. <laughs> I got no yeah, exactly. Being Trumpy. And you look, look, and it's not just politicians. I've seen, I've seen late night talk show hosts, comedy comics, uh, comedians, you know, make jokes uh, yeah. and use Asian slurs. And it's still uh, acceptable for some people still don't check themselves before they say they don't have that filter. That's like this, I shouldn't do. And that's the problem. Yeah, that needs to change. I, look, look I, I think, look, I don't want to minimize. Well, look, it, it's, it's too, it's too, the, it's too, it's, it's an acknowledgement of how bad the N word is when we talk about African-American people, but we've got to make it so that it's taboo to do that with Asian people and all mm-hmm. the ways that it happens. And we've, we've got to make it taboo. And, and making these things taboo is not the same as cancel culture. It's not the same as political correctness. It's, it's what we've got to do to be a better country, uh, to be the last great hope on earth. That's what's really going to make us the last great hope on earth is to have a country with all these different people in it who avoid being cruel to one another uh, and try to be kind. Um, and, and not hide behind arguments of free speech or try to equate uh, a promotion of kindness with like, this is what, this is the same as the yeah. Communist party. That's ridiculous. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, I'm so, I'm so glad that people like you and Grace Meng and Senator Duckworth, Senator Hirono and the vice president are so visible right now and able to rise to the moment. Thank you so, so much for your time, Congressman Takano. Amanda, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the work you do. My God. Oh, I mean, no problem. Happy I hope, to help. I hope you get lots and lots of people listening. So, oh, me too. Me too. We're I, I excited. Know you do. I know. I know. I know you have a huge audience. And you've got big, big fans of it. It's because you know. I think you provide like really, you know, fresh content. And, thank you. Uh, well, I was. I awesome. said on the podcast yesterday. My fiance is Chinese American, so it's a really. My daughter will be Asian women, and it's been a really difficult week for all of our extended uh, family. So. I'm lucky to be able to talk to people like you about it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Congressman. Until the end of Democracy, this is the Betches Sub Podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to SUPPod at Betches.com. Batches.